The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, as we continue our look at the first three chapters in the book of Revelation. This morning we'll give attention to verses 18 through the end of the chapter. John records these words from the Lord. And to the angel of the church at Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burning. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance. But I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent and her, uh, to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has ear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is rich. It's true in all of its form. Every word is your words. Your words are recorded for us, for our encouragement, for our instruction, for our reproving, for our growth and maturity. So this morning as we turn our attention to your words to this church in in Asia many years ago, we pray that, you would, that we would hear your words to us, this church, today. Words of caution and words of warning. Words of commendation and affirmation. Lord, the net result, we pray, would be that we would be a church that, that lives on balance. That we would be a church that's faithful to your truth. And a church that loves others. And we pray for our own selves individually, Lord, that we would be reflections of those truths as well. We trust the the work of your Spirit in our lives to give us discernment and wisdom and to bring conviction where it's needed in our lives this morning. So we come before you with open hearts and we pray, O Lord, that you would teach us in real and clear and practical ways from your word and that you would do all for your glory and your honor. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. This week I was... um, 
doing some work online and, and I uh, stumbled across a, a video clip of this, uh, this guy walking on a rope uh, across from one peak of a, of a cliff of a mountain across to another with this massive valley underneath and he was one of those guys that you know you see him walking on this really thin rope and he's got the the balance bar in his hand and he's very carefully placing one foot in front of the other now I I find it the older I get for some reason the more fearful I am of heights I don't remember as a kid being terrified of heights but the older I get the more I'm realizing I really don't like to be somewhere high where the potential for me falling could be catastrophic and so I find myself in odd odd situations where these days I'm somewhere and I'm like why am I afraid wow this is really high that never used to happen before I found myself doing that when I was watching this video clip it was a video I knew how it was going to end I already knew but I still found myself with sweaty palms and just on the edge of my seat watching this 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 man balance and walk across this rope over this valley and I just stood in amazement that somebody could develop that kind of a skill in the area of balance that that someone could balance themselves on a rope that narrow and that they were so confident in their ability to balance that they would take the risk of doing it over a treacherous valley where any slip could mean immediate peril and uh, I watched this guy with amazement go from one side all the way to the other and uh, I was nervous with him all the way across, even though I knew he was going to make it. But as I watched him, I, the, the whole concept of balance started, started ringing in my mind because in the back of my mind, I had been studying the church at Thyatira, and we've been working our way through this series on the churches. And one of the things that continuously sort of comes to mind as I'm moving from church to church and studying what Christ says to these churches is the critical importance of balance in our in our lives not so much physical balance to walk across a rope over a valley which probably isn't the wisest thing to try and and do in your life but the kind of spiritual balance that keeps us in a place where we're walking uh, uh, with wisdom and discernment along the lines of tension in the scriptures where we're walking with discernment and wisdom in the various sort of spheres of our Christian lives, balancing all the things that Christ calls us to do and to be. One of the things I'm struck with as I read about these churches and the things that were happening in Christ's observation or his performance evaluation, if you will, of these churches is that inevitably most of the churches have gotten something out of balance. They've gotten some things that they're doing really well, and there are other things that that are just out of balance. And because they've lost their balance and their equilibrium, Christ has some some words of judgment and some words of correction to bring into their world. And and it's a reminder to me that that on a lot of fronts we're called to do things and be things as a church, and, and there's always the danger of being out of balance. Theologically, we can get out of balance. If, if you scan the horizon of the modern church environment, you'll no doubt run across churches that get theologically out of balance. They, they, they find some doctrine that becomes a hobby horse, and, and they elevate that doctrine above all others, and, and they get out of balance to where they're emphasizing one truth of God's Word to the exclusion of others, and often in contradiction to others. Forget to maintain a theological balance particularly in in our world, sort of the slice of the evangelical world that we find ourselves in, sort of the reformed side of of, uh, of modern Baptist church life, 
Uh, it's, it's, it's easy in our little slice of the world to, to find people who elevate the doctrines of grace and, and Calvinism and begin to worship those doctrines in particular to the exclusion of other things. And they get out of balance. You can turn on the television and you can watch churches from all over the place. If you turn on the 24-7 the church channel, you won't have to look very long to find people who have all sorts of doctrines way out of balance. And they lead people into all sorts of foolish behaviors. We don't want to be that kind of a church. We don't want to be the kind of church that gets out of balance. We need to be able to balance things. And we're going to find that this church at Thyatira, much like the church at Ephesus, had gotten some things right, but they had gotten some things out of balance. And Christ is going to correct them with the intention of helping to bring them back to an equilibrium. We don't know much about this church at Thyatira. If you were to look at that map that we've shown a few times over the series, you'll find that Pergamum that we looked at uh, last time is furthest north. Thyatira is about 40 miles south, southeast of Pergamum. Uh, it's, not a, uh, it, it's on a plain. It's on flat territory there, uh, kind of an outpost. It's really the least important of these cities, at least at the time in which John was writing this. One commentator by the name of Hammer writes this. He says, the longest and most difficult of the seven letters is addressed to the least known, least important, and least remarkable of the churches, which is fa rather fascinating if you think about it. We really don't know much about Thyatira itself. It's not mentioned much in ancient history. It's not mentioned much in the Bible. Uh, we don't know much about the church that existed there, uh, apart from just a few sort of uh, ancillary remarks that we find. Uh, it's only mentioned one other time in Scripture. That's in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, where we're introduced in the midst of, of, of reading about Paul's journey and Paul's establishment of the church at Philippi. We, we find that one of his early converts at Philippi was a woman by the name of Lydia, who was one of the very first to come to Christ in Philippi. And we're told that she was from the city, Thyatira, and she was a, a seller of purple goods. It's the only time it's mentioned uh, in the New Testament. Uh, what we do know about Thyatira from some of the excavation that's taken place on this site is that it was a very popular commercial city. It's different from some of the other cities that we've looked at. It's a commercial city. It's a, it's a shopping destination, if you will. It was a place that was filled with tradesmen and tradeswomen who made things and sold them there in the marketplace. If you needed something in, in first century Asia Minor, Thyatira was the place that you traveled to to get that something. It was the place where some things were made and the people who make some things make them and sell them there at Thyatira. And so it was an important commercial city. There were people there who made all sorts of things and sold all sorts of things. You could buy fabrics. You could buy leather goods. You could buy metal goods. There were famous bakeries there where you could gorge yourself on good baked goods. There were metal workers. There were all sorts of tradespeople in this city who made things and fashioned things and sold things. One of the things they were particularly well known for was dyed fabrics. They had sort of, some of the, the tradespeople there had mastered the art of dyeing fabrics certain colors, the most notorious of which was a famous purple fabric that you heard mentioned. Lydia was uh, one of the, the ladies who was able to do this and sold this and had probably become wealthy doing this. They had figured out how to extract a, a purple coloration from a root that was found out in that area and they could use it as a dye to make purple garments and if you like purple like I like purple then you would have loved to go to Philippi and that's where you could buy your purple stuff. Uh, as a good Clemson Tiger fan, 
we could say our colors go back to Lydia, right? In the Bible, they're biblical. Uh, it's not true at all. I'm just making that up altogether, but it sounded neat. But what you should understand about this city is it's different from the others because it's largely a blue-collar city. It's a blue-collar city with people filled largely, or they're tradespeople who work with their hands and, and who sell the things that they make. It's not a, a, a city of high intellectuals. It's not a city known for medical practice or some of the things that we've seen in some of the other cities. This is a place with common people, common tradesmen, merchants, tanners, potters, bakers, metal workers, wool and linen workers. These are the kinds of folks who make up this city of Thyatira. Unlike Pergamum that we looked at last time, it's not a, a city that, that was an important religious city. It really isn't known for anything significant in the world of, of religion other than the primary god of the city that they worshipped was Apollo, the son of Zeus, uh, supposedly, who was also sort of the sun god that was sort of the patron god of, of Thyatira. It's interesting, we'll see Jesus identify himself in this text as the son of God, the only time he identifies himself that way uh, in the book of Revelation altogether. And it might be because the one god that they, were no, that they were known to worship was this god Apollo who was known to be the son of Zeus. And here Jesus identifies himself as the son of God. He really is the son of the one true God, not Apollo who's the fake son of a false God, a demon. What you really need to know that's most pertinent for our understanding of the text today about Thyatira is that it was a city, because it was a trade city, it was well known and famous for its, its guilds. There were guilds all throughout the city. If you don't know what a guild is, it's, it's, it's roughly equivalent to today's modern labor unions. All of these craftsmen and all of these tradespeople who made things uh, were a part, each a part of a guild. You had to, in order to be able to make and sell things in this particular time, you had to be initiated into the guild for that particular trade. And so you had, you had metal workers guilds, and you had pottery guilds, and you had uh, wool and linen making guilds. And these guilds were more than just a labor union in the sense of modern labor unions. They also functioned with multiple purposes. They became sort of the central hub of commercial and social life in the city. Like if, if you were to, to participate in the social life of the city, that happened within the context of the guild. The guild would get together and they would have celebrations and they would share meals and, and that would, all of the social life that you would be involved in in this city revolved around being a member, a part of the guild. And so it was very important socially. It was very important commercially because if you didn't get initiated into the guild and you weren't a member of the guild, you had a very, very difficult time finding a job. And even if you had a trade, you, you found it very difficult to find a way to get the things you needed to make your trade, and you found it even more difficult to sell your things because it was well known to everyone that you were not a participant in the guild. And there's a problem, though. Each one of these guilds had their own patron god, or in our sense, false god, that they looked to as the, the provider for the guild. And so all of these social gatherings and all of these guild meetings involved celebrations and feasts where food that was prepared and served was offered on sacrifice to the patron god of the guild. And often what happened is in the context of these, in these gatherings and these celebrations, the, the revelry would sort of uh, begin to deteriorate into immorality. And so you can understand pretty quickly here the problem you had if you're a Christian in Thyatira, right? 
If you're a Christian in Thyatira and you're a part of this church, you're in a dilemma. You're between a rock and a hard place. You, you're, you're, you realize that you have to feed your family, and you do that by plying your trade, by making your thing that you make and selling it in the city. But in order to make it and in order to sell it, it's important you have to be a part of the guild, otherwise you're going to struggle. But if you're a part of the guild, you have to participate in these gatherings and eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols and likely participate or at least find yourself in temptation's way uh, as the environment begins to sort of deteriorate into immorality and sexual immorality in particular and so you can understand the dilemma you have if you're a member of the church at Thyatira you're struggling there's 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 not so the issue with this church is there's an economic pressure on people in order to be able to to succeed economically there's pressure to fit in and that pressure drives them to to need to be a part of a guild but in order to be a part of the guild you have to compromise your faith and disobey the Lord And so you can understand the struggle. What do we do? I need to feed my family. I want to ply my trade. But I also want to be faithful to Christ and not compromise my spiritual life. So what do I do? This is the challenge that's facing the church at Thyatira. It's an economic and a social pressure sort of to compromise their faith. Pergamum was different, right? There was this external sort of... um, uh, persecution that was coming at the church where one of the members had been killed and there was this pressure from the outside that was a persecuting kind of, mis- uh, of pressure. This one was more of an internal sort of a pressure that they were dealing with. This, this drive or this temptation to compromise their faith in order to succeed economically. It's a different sort of a thing altogether. A different sort of a problem. And people were dealing with it in different sorts of ways. But many in this church were not dealing with it in the right way. And so Christ speaks to them. He writes to them by the pen of John. And he starts like he does with every other letter by offering a greeting and then by giving them some commendations on some things that they're doing well. So verse 18, we find the greeting. And to the angel of the church at Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Again, you can flip back to chapter 1 and see that this description of Christ is pulled directly from chapter 1 where he identified himself the same way, just like the other greetings have been. He identifies, as I already mentioned, himself as the Son of God only here. And it's just a a, a clear reference to the fact that he's the divine judge, the true Son of God, setting apart from any other false god in the city of Thyatira, Zeus, Apollo, anyone else. This is the true Son of God who comes with full deity and he comes with the full power and ability to execute judgment. And that's what he intends to do in coming to this, this town and this church. He's, he's, we're told he has eyes like a flame of fire. It's, it's an emphasis on this, this piercing vision which, which sees all that's going on in the, in the life of the church. The, the idea is Christ is saying, I'm coming to you. The one who's coming to you, you can't hide from me. I see everything the way it is. You can't hide me. You can't dupe me. You can't fool me. You can fool other people, but you can't fool me. My eyes see through your facade. I see right to the heart of exactly what's going on in your midst. There's no hiding. There's no hypocrisy. There's no disguise. There's no pretext. There's no cover-up that is beyond my view. I can't be duped. I can't be fooled. The, The truth is laid bare before my eyes. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, the same description is given. 
and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. It's a gentle reminder, not just to the church at Thyatira, but to you and to me, that one day the, the Christ who writes the letter to that church is the same Christ who's going to call us to account, not only for our congregational life, but also for our individual life. All of us will stand before him and give an account of our lives. And our full lives will be laid bare. There's no hiding. There's no pretext. The truth is just there for him to see. His eyes like blazing fire remind us that he sees everything. Feet like burnished bronze, a, a symbol of strength and power and purity and holiness. It's really a, a fearsome picture of Christ. This is not baby Jesus meek and mild. This is warrior Jesus coming to execute judgment. And it's a fearsome description for this church. And, and I can only imagine, it must have been alarming to be sitting in church that Sunday morning when this letter was first read. To hear Christ, your, your Savior, describe himself as coming to you this way. As we're going to see with this church, on many fronts, they, they were doing well. They were doing well in a lot of different ways, but underneath the surface, underneath the surface, there's this deadly cancer that's spreading throughout the church. And Christ sees it, and he intends to address it. But what are they doing right? We find that in verse 19. He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. On the surface, this church is doing a lot of things right. If you were to sort of visit there on, a, on any given Sunday morning, you would probably observe what you see in this church, and you would say, man, this is a good church. These folks are doing some things right. What you would have observed in that congregation is what Christ observed. You would have observed a congregation that's loving. They got love right. They were genuinely loving church. They loved the Lord Jesus Christ. They loved God, the Father. They loved the Spirit of God. They loved each other. And they had a love for their neighbor around them. All of the ways in which love should be directed out of the life of a believer, it was, it was encapsulated here in the lives of these, these Christians at Thyatira. They were genuinely a loving church. They loved people. They excelled in this category. You could contrast that with Ephesus that we studied a few weeks ago. You may remember Ephesus had a problem in this area. Ephesus, that church had become cold, and they had, they had sort of developed this sort of suspicious, judgmental, and rigid sort of an environment where love had been squeezed out. They had become so zealous for theological purity that it had just squeezed love out. And this whole culture and environment of suspicion and this culture and environment of judgmentalism and of nitpicking and of, of just sort of oppression had settled in on the church, and love had gotten pushed out the doors. But not at Thyatira. Thyatira, they were loving people. They hadn't become cold and callous like the church at Ephesus. This is a loving church, but also it's a faithful church. He says, I observe your love and your faith. The word better translated there would be faithfulness or fidelity. It's just a reminder that this congregation was a, a congregation that had showed consistency in their walk. In other words, the way that they lived and the way that they lived out their faith and the way that they served the Lord was not an anomaly. It wasn't hit and miss. They were a faithful church who consistently served the Lord in their community and consistently did what Christ had called them to do. They were a faithful church. And they were also a church that Christ commends for their service. 
And service and love tend to go hand in hand, don't they? When you find people who genuinely love other people, love genuinely drives us to serve other people. When we love other people, we, we don't, we, it's not burdensome to serve other people because we care about them and we care about their needs and we want to be a part of, of meeting those needs. It's when love gets squeezed out of our life that service gets withdrawn and becomes a burden and a headache and an agitation that we don't want to deal with in our life. But not at this church. They were loving people and their love had driven them to serve other people and to care for them. They were known as a servant-hearted church. They weren't selfish and self-oriented. They had had followed Christ's example. In Mark chapter 10, you remember Jesus said in verse 35, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? But to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. They understood that Christ came as a servant to serve, not to be served, and they had modeled that in their body life at the church. They were known as a church that excelled in serving. Oh, that every church would be known for that. And he goes on to mention patient endurance. They had faced great challenges. As I mentioned already in the, in the introduction here, there was pressure on this church and on these believers, and, and they had patiently endured as a church the, the, the challenges that had, had come along the way, and they, they'd made it through for the most part, apart from what we're going to see as problematic. But what's most notable, I think, in this introduction, the commendation, is that Christ says something really remarkable to this church. He says something that probably can't be said of most churches. He says, your latter works exceed the first. That's a pretty remarkable thing to say about a church. You started out well, but you're, you're getting better. It's not unusual to see folks start out with a bang and then sort of dwindle and fall off, right? That's, not, that's a dime a dozen. But that wasn't this church. This church started with a bang, and they kept banging, and they were doing better. They were a loving church at the beginning, but they were even more loving now. They were a servant-hearted church in the beginning, but they were becoming even more servant-hearted. They were faithful and enduring sort of congregation before, but they were growing in this. This is a church that's growing in their maturity and in their outworking of the Spirit of God in their midst and in their lives. Their love is increasing. Their faithfulness is increasing. Their service is increasing. They're they're going strong and they're growing strong and they're getting better as time marches on. Again, we can contrast this with Ephesus, right? Where Christ comes to the church at Ephesus and he says to them, you have abandoned the love you had at first, right? You used to be a loving church before, but somehow you've lost it. You've abandoned that along the way. You haven't gotten better, you've lost it. The church at Thyatira is precisely the opposite. He says to them, you are a loving church, but you've gotten more loving. More loving. What a remarkable thing to say to a church. What a remarkable testimony to have as a church. That you're a church that's getting better by the day. A church that's getting better with the years. That's growing in its maturity into the outworking of salvation in the, in the areas of service and in the area of love and in the areas of maturity. By all outward appearances, this would have been a great church. You would have noticed that when you went there. But you remember, the one who's speaking here is the one with eyes that blaze like fire, who see beyond the surface, and who sees what's going on underneath. And sadly, in this church, there is something incredibly destructive going on underneath the surface. And it's threatening to squash out all the good things that they're doing. In fact, the life of the church, the future of the church, is in jeopardy because of the problem. And we're told what the problem is in verse 20. I have this against you. 
you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Uh Uh-oh, there's a problem in the church. There's a problem. The problem is there's a self-appointed prophetess who is navigating the life of the church unhindered and she's teaching false doctrine and she's leading people toward compromise and away from Christ. She's leading people to compromise in the area of sexual, sexual immorality and in the area of eating meat sacrificed to idols which had been forbidden. We need to understand as we begin to look at what's going on in this church that God cares deeply about the doctrinal purity of his church. The folks at Ephesus were not wrong in their zeal for doctrinal purity. They were not wrong in that at all. Christ cares about the doctrinal purity of his church. He cares that the people who lead and teach, teach right doctrine. He cares about that. It's a deadly serious matter to him. The problem in Ephesus was that it had squeezed out love and they had gotten out of balance. They had lost their balance. The answer wasn't to to swing the other way and become a loving congregation that lacks discernment theologically. That's what we're going to find is happening here at Thyatira. Whereas Ephesus had fallen off the tightrope to the left, Thyatira has fallen off the tightrope to the right. They're good at love, but they're allowing this self-appointed prophetess to run throughout the church and teach false doctrine and lead people away. And it's not just that she's doing it. It's that they're tolerating it. That's the problem. And the problem with, with false doctrine, see, the reason, one of the reasons Christ cares so deeply about the doctrinal purity of his church is because our, our behaviors tend to follow our beliefs. In other words, we act off of what we believe. We don't act really irrationally in most cases. We, we act based on what we believe. So when our doctrine is right, we tend to behave rightly. When our doctrine veers off in the wrong direction, our behavior normally follows hand in hand. And that's what's going on in in Thyatira. This lady is teaching a false doctrine, and the people are believing the false doctrine, and it's leading them to behave in ways that are ungodly and sinful. And so that's the problem that you have that's, that's being dealt with here. We don't know precisely what is happening in this church, but we do know there's an unholy prophetess. She's teaching false doctrine, and she's leading other people to sinful living. And that's a problem in the life of any church. It's a problem in the life of any church. When there's someone within the church who rises up and begins to teach contrary doctrine, heresy, and begins to gather other people to follow after them, and begins to lead them in ways that are unholy and sinful and ungodly, it's a problem that a church absolutely cannot ignore under any circumstances. And yet at Thyatira, it appears that that's exactly what is happening. You see, Christ had already laid out what the church was to do in situations just like this. In Matthew 18, you may remember, in verses 15 through 17, he talks about how we deal with sinful behavior in the life of the church. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. But if he doesn't listen, you take one or two others along with you, that every charge might be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. You see, Christ had laid out a process for the church to deal with situations just like this situation with Jezebel. He had given them a process, and he had shown them what they needed to do to address it, but the church had refused to do it. 
And Christ's process is a redemptive process. You'll notice that in that Matthew 18 passage. The goal is not to come down with an iron hammer on everybody who makes a mistake. The goal is to, to at the lowest level possible, address one another and with, a, with a loving heart and a gentle spirit in order to draw people who are sinning back to repentance and back to faithfulness to the Lord. And somebody somewhere in this church at Thyatira should have engaged Jezebel at that level long, long ago. Long, long ago. And if she had refused to listen, they should have gone and gotten two or three others and engaged her again and pled with her to repent of her sin and what she was doing in the life of this church and to come back to Christ and to come back to faithful church membership. And if she had refused to listen to them, they should have brought her before the church and they should have exposed the whole church to what was going on, to this woman's sinful and destructive behavior. And the church should have acted in unity and as a congregation to exclude her from the body to cut out the cancer before it could kill other people. And yet this, this loving church had refused to do that. They had refused to do that. Whereas the Ephesian church had gone too far in this area, this church has not gone far enough. They refused to confront this woman. They refused to stop her. And so because of that, her heresy had been spreading all throughout the church. Thyatira becomes sort of the prototype church for thousands of churches since then who absolutely refuse to deal with sinful behavior and heresy when it pops up in the life of the church and just turn a blind eye to it and allow those kinds of cancers to sort of erode the foundations of the church and to corrupt and influence other people and lead other people away from Christ. And their inaction infuriates Christ. And so he acts whereas his people have chosen not to. The issue that this church is dealing with is they're too tolerant. They're too tolerant. They've tolerated this lady. You know, I can remember very early on in my ministry, really early on, uh, there was a man who, who was active in the church, and um, he had been there for decades attending the church. And, and I was a young pastor, young and green and just trying to find my way. And one of the things that I even knew at my point, you know, from where I was, was this guy... Was, was an ungodly man. I mean, it just came through in, in all of his behaviors. He was mean, he was rude, he was, he was uh, judgmental, yeah, he was unloving, uh, he made simple things difficult. Uh, it was like it was his joy to come in and criticize somebody or something or to make anything the church needed to do to move forward a difficult and painful move. He was just that kind of a guy. And he had been at church for decades. And I often wondered, how is it that somebody can sit under the, the teaching of God's word year after year after year for decades and still be a mean, rude, crass, ugly human being who nobody wants to be around? The kind of person that you see him in in, in you know, Publix, and you want to dive behind the produce so you don't have to see him in the store. And what was more amazing to me during those years was the fact that this guy had existed in the life of the church, and everybody knew who he was and had been on the other side of him at some point, and yet everybody tolerated it. Everybody tolerated it. They'd allowed this man to do this for years and years and years and years in the life of the church. I'll never forget that guy. And I never could understand. You talk to people and they, they, you start to say, what's the deal with this? And they would say, well, that's just, that's just him. That's just the way he is. It's just the way he is. And my response was always, well, can he be the way he is somewhere else? Because I don't like the way he is. And it's, 
making life miserable for everybody else in the life of the church. Beyond that, it's ungodly and it's wrong. But people wouldn't confront him, just like this, this Jezebel in Thyatira. Nobody would go to him and walk through that process and deal with it. I remember one day I had attempted to start doing that, and no one had done that with him before, and he did not like it in the least. He was about that tall. And so I, I was, you know, I, I would, when I would have these engagements with him, I would stand, you know, I usually slouch, but I would stand real tall, you know. And I remember one Sunday that he had come at me about some petty thing that had him all fired up and he was just on a rampage and he's pointing his finger at me like this, you know, just going to town and telling me how uh, if it wasn't for him, I would speak Japanese or German. Apparently, somehow in his mind, he single-handedly had won World War II and because of that, he should just be allowed to do whatever he wanted to do in the life of the church and I should just be grateful uh, for that. but, but uh, he did not respond well to being challenged. But eventually, he left the church, and he went other places and did the same thing. But I was amazed at the level of tolerance that people had in the life of the church. And I always wondered why it was, and I think it was because, in general, people were just loving in that congregation at the time. It was just a loving community, and people had just sort of chalked up his behavior to, that's just who he is, but we really like him as a person, and we really want the best for him, and so we're just going to leave him alone and let him do what he does. But that's never the right response when someone is living in blatant, outright sin in the life of the church. Never is that the right response. It wasn't the right response for my congregation at that time, and it was not the right response at the church at Thyatira. There has to be a balance that's struck between doctrinal fidelity and love. We have to be able to maintain both of those things. We have to be able to maintain a church where we hold to the truth and we expect people to live in the truth, and at the same time, we have a high standard of love for one another. Those things can be balanced, and they have to be balanced. We can't be so narrow and militant in our doctrine that we squeeze out love and charity, but we also can't be so loving that we fail to confront false doctrine. You can't be either one of those things. You have to balance the two. And this church wasn't balancing the two. Instead of stopping this woman, they were tolerating her. Tolerance is a a buzzword in our culture, isn't it? We're supposed to be tolerant of anything and everything. Well, in this case, Christ says to this church, the problem I have with you is you're tolerant. You're tolerant, and you're not, you ought not be tolerant. We're called to be patient as believers. We're called to be charitable with one another, but we're not called to be tolerant of these kinds of things. We're called to correct people with gentleness and humility and not harshness, but we must correct and not just tolerate. And that's the issue with Jezebel. Now, likely Jezebel's not her real name. Uh, We don't know for sure. Commentators argue about that. But it's likely that that's probably not her name. And in fact, it was not a popular name. Uh, Jezebel, if you've read 1 Kings, you know a little bit about Jezebel. She was the the vile wife of King Ahab, who, who, uh, who was known for just being a vile and satanic and nasty woman. She had led King Ahab... Uh, away from the Lord and all of Israel had led him away and had, had, had sort of drawn him to be setting up uh, <clears throat> altars to worship false gods. She's a Phoenician, and so she worshiped Phoenician false gods. And she had led King Ahab <clears throat> and all the people of Israel into, into false god worship, to, to idol worship, away from the Lord. And that idol worship usually also involved immorality, sexual immorality as well. And she had spread that garbage not only to Ahab, but all throughout the people of Israel. So go back to 1 Kings 
I think it's verses, uh, chapters 16 through 19 or so, and you can read about Jezebel, and uh, you can find out the gory way she ends. But her name became notorious for evil, became notorious for Baal worship and immorality. And this, 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 this woman that's going around the church at Thyatira is behaving precisely in that congregation like Jezebel did in Israel back in Ahab's day. And so I think what's likely happening here is Christ is identifying her based on her behavior. She's behaving just like Jezebel in the Old Testament. That's how she's behaving in the life of this church. And that's not a compliment in case you're wondering. Her name likely wasn't Jezebel. There just weren't very many people naming their, their kids Jezebel because of the baggage that went with the name, right? Even today, the name Jezebel isn't popular. You still don't think about all you, all you families out there who've got kids. If you had a little girl, not a one of you ever thought about naming your child, your precious daughter, Jezebel, did you? Right? You didn't. There's a reason why you didn't. You may not even know what the reason is why you didn't. But the reason is because the one famous Jezebel in the world was a vile, nasty woman who led people away from God. That was even more well-known in the days of the first century than it is now. People didn't normally name their daughters Jezebel unless they really didn't like their daughter for some reason. So what's likely happening here is Christ is identifying her based on the template of her behavior. She's acting like Jezebel from the Old Testament. It's her sin. She's seducing people, seducing the servants of the Lord to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. She's teaching a false doctrine. We don't know the, the particulars of it, but we know that the results are two problems. People are going and they're becoming sexually immoral and there's, there's this meat-eating problem they're dealing with. What's likely happening here is similar to what was going on with the Nicolaitans that we had talked about in the previous weeks with some of the other churches. They were dealing with this sort of early Gnostic dualism that taught that the body is evil and the spirit is good and that there was a dichotomy between the two, and that what God was really concerned about was your spiritual life and your spirit, that he wasn't particularly concerned with what you do with your body, that it was your spirit that was to be redeemed, and your body was evil and going to be destroyed. And so that it became this dichotomy theology that says you can do whatever you want with your body and still be faithful in your spirit to the Lord. So it created a very sort of convenient spirituality that allowed you to come to church on Sunday and worship God with a clear conscience and spiritually and then go out with your body during the week and do whatever you wanted to do and participate in whatever you wanted to without any real conviction. Some form of that is inevitably what she's teaching in the life of this church. She's teaching the believers at Thyatira something along the lines of this. You can be a Christian in good standing in the church and you can still go participate in the guild and eat the meat sacrifice to the idols and participate in the sexual immorality and God's going to be okay with it. She'd minimize their sins that they were struggling with and you could see why this would be an appealing doctrine to the believers in this church who are struggling with this problem who are struggling to be faithful to Christ in a context where it's hard to do that and be economically successful. And so along comes a, a persuasive, uh, charismatic woman in the church who's saying, listen, you just don't get it. There's, there's a, additional truth that you don't know yet, and let me just teach you these deeper truths. They're going to set you free from the struggle you're in. You don't have to struggle with the guilt. You can participate in all that stuff and still be faithful to God. And so you can understand why that false doctrine, that heresy, got traction in this church. 
It had a particular appeal to people who wanted to have their cake and eat it too. And it's a false doctrine that's still alive and well today, right? Some form of this doctrine has existed all throughout history, right? The idea that somehow you can be faithful to the Lord spiritually and with your body you can live however you want to live. We find it all throughout evangelicalism today. We find it all throughout Roman Catholicism today. I dealt with it almost exclusively, not exclusively, but it was one of the top one or two things that I dealt with in, in engaging people who identified as Christians when I was deployed over the last 10 months was people who had developed some sort of a thought process that they could be faithful to God in their beliefs, but it, what they did with their lives and their bodies really didn't matter, and it didn't affect, one didn't affect the other. It's a vile heresy that, that, that damns a soul to hell. But what makes it particularly vile is it damns a soul to hell while that soul believes it's going to heaven. And it's still alive today. It's interesting to know bad doctrine can come from teachers who are winsome and persuasive. Clearly this woman was both. Because she'd been going around for a while and she had gathered a large following. Perhaps, perhaps even the majority of the church was beginning to follow her. It's a serious problem that's gone on and people have not addressed it. And it's not just that she believes all this junk, it's that she's leading other people into it. That makes it worse. It's one thing to be a heretic and believe wrongly and behave wrongly. It's another thing to spread that and lead other people to it. Jesus addressed this in Matthew 18 as well. You remember when he said to a crowd that had followed, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a millstone fastened around his neck and to be what? Drown in the depths of the sea. That you're better off drowning yourself than going out there and leading other people to unfaithfulness to Christ. And Jezebel had ignored that. And it's a stark reminder, though, to all of us who lead and to all of us who teach and to all of us who have influence over other people that we best pay attention and make sure that we at least do our, the best diligence that we can to get it right. Because to lead people wrongly is foolish, and Christ does not take that lightly. And we see that he doesn't take it lightly because in verse 22 and following, he lays out the consequences. He says, here's the problem. You've let this go on, church. Here's the problem, and here's what's getting ready to happen. He says, I'm coming in judgment. I'll throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I'll throw in a great tribulation unless they repent. I'll strike her children dead. Hey, those are serious words. He says specific things to specific groups of people. He deals with Jezebel initially, right? I'll throw her onto, the ESV translates this as sickbed. I think the NIV says something along the lines of a bed of sickness. The word sickness is not in the original Greek. It's, it's, in, it's, it's been inserted by translators trying to give an interpretation and make some sense in the English language of what's going on here. I'm not convinced that's the best translation. Literally what it says is I'll throw her onto a bed. I think what's going on here is that he's talking about a deathbed. The issue with Jezebel is she's a sexually immoral woman. It's as though God is saying to her, you like to be playing around in the bed. Well, I'm going to throw you onto a bed, a bed where there's not going to be any fun and any pleasure, a bed where you're going to die and go to hell. That's what's getting ready to happen to you. He's sending a very clear message to her. You're going to get in a bed, but it's not the one you've been getting into. Make note that earlier, verse 21 or so, he's saying to her, he says to us that she had been given an opportunity to repent, 
but she had refused. She'd refused. We don't know what that looked like, but at some point along the way, God had come to her through some people and had called her to repentance, and this woman had hardened herself and refused and refused and refused any advances towards repentance. And so God says to her, okay, it's fine. You've refused to repent, and your refusal is final, so my judgment to you is going to be final. I'm going to take you out. Much like the Old Testament Jezebel, she's going to meet an untimely death. And he goes on to say to the to believers in the broader circle who were fooled by her, those who commit adultery with her is what he says of them. I'll throw them into great tribulation unless they repent. So there's this other circle of people in the church who've been duped by this false teacher, who believed her, who've been fooled by her, who have just followed along with the crowd and, and gone after what she's been saying and have been acting on that. Christ says, it's not too late for you. It's not too late for you. You've committed spiritual adultery with this woman, maybe even literal adultery, but you've certainly committed spiritual adultery. You've followed her in worshiping and eating meat sacrificed to idols. So listen, I'm going to deal with you too. There's going to be great tribulation. I'm going to bring pain and difficulty in your life. And the goal of that is to bring you to repentance. There's still hope. There's still time for you. But if you don't repent, there's going to be a severe price. And then there's another group of people he refers to as her children. Who are these people? I'll strike her children dead. Her children are the, the sort of her, her disciples, if you will, not just those who've sort of blindly followed, but those who've been convinced like her, maybe her, her leadership circle who've been convinced in helping her sort of spread this throughout the church, those who've hardened themselves and refused to repent like she has, her converts, if you will, to her belief system. He says, I'll strike them dead. Strike them dead. Those who are hardened like Jezebel and are helping her spread this cancer throughout the church, Christ Jesus says, I'm coming to this church and I am going to kill the cancer before it can infect one more person. You say, well, boy, that sounds harsh. It is harsh. Christ, think about this. Christ intended to come to this church to kill people, to kill people for their unfaithfulness as part of his judgment. Don't let that slide past you easily what was going on in the life of this church was deadly serious and Christ had put up with it and given an opportunity for repentance and had given opportunity for this church to stop tolerating it and they had refused and so he comes to execute justice and vengeance he says I am going to kill these people see that sounds harsh isn't that what all of our sin deserves from Christ Isn't that what all of our sin deserves from him? Is for him to come and kill us? He would be perfectly righteous. He would be perfectly right and just to do that to you or me or anybody else. The fact that he allows any of us to live and to continue on sinning is not not some right that we have. It's pure grace. And there are times when Christ says, I've had enough and I'm going to come and I'm going to execute justice, and I'm going to execute it swiftly, and I'm going to execute it publicly in order to make a statement. And that's what he's doing here. He says, I'm doing this so all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I'll give to each one according to your works. He's saying, I'm coming to you, Thyatira, and I'm going to execute severe judgment, and it's going to be to make an example so that all the other churches will know about what happens in your church, and they're going to be brought to an understanding that I take these things seriously. 
that I search the mind and I search the heart and I hold people accountable for their deeds. It would be a frightening message to hear if you were sitting in church that Sunday morning. He says to the rest of the people of Thyatira, there was a group in this church who had resisted all this. There was a group who had held strong, who had refused to follow this woman. And he says to them, to you, to you, I do not lay on you any other burden. I don't lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. He says, I'm coming to execute justice. I'm going to kill people, but not you. Not you. You've held on. You keep holding on. You keep holding on when I get there. You don't have to be afraid. They had resisted and stood firm and refused and suffered. And Christ commended them for that. And they stood to to face his love and not his justice. Well, time is up, but listen to the end in verses 26 through 28. Beautiful promises here to those who conquer and who keep his works until the end. He says to them, I will give authority over the nations. He'll rule them with a rod of iron and as with earthen pots broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from the Father, and I'll give him the morning star. There are really two promises encapsulated here to those who overcome to those who hold fast, to those who maintain a balance right up to the end, who maintain doctrinal fidelity and love, who live in purity and obey the Lord and hold on and resist the heresy right up to the end. Two things, he says, I'm going to give you authority over nations. This is a reference to their rule with Christ, likely in the millennial kingdom, depending on how you understand eschatology to play out. But in some way, in the future, he says to this little beleaguered church, to the faithful believers there, listen, it's tough right now, but one day I'm going to give you the ability to rule with me. Write Psalm 2 down in the margin if you're taking notes, verses 7 through 9. You'll see exactly where the imagery comes from in this promise, a promise that the Messiah is going to return and that he's going to execute judgment and have authority over all the earth. And here we're told that Christ's faithful believers who follow after him and who are faithful to the end will share in that authority with him and rule with him. To these people who are beaten down, it would have been great, great encouragement to hear, well, hey, I might be beaten down now, but one day I'm going to rule with Christ. And the second thing they're promised is the morning star. This is even more sort of difficult to make sense of. Again, many interpretations here. What makes sense to me is in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, we find Jesus saying this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Christ identifies himself as the bright morning star. I think this is a promise that Christ is saying to them, I'm going to give you the greatest gift that ever could be given to anybody, personal, intimate relationship with me. The glory of heaven is not a street of gold. It's not the beauty of the place. It's not the fact that the sun and the moon and all of that operates differently. It's not that we'll be reunited with people that we love that have gone before us. The beauty and the glory of heaven is the Lord Jesus Christ himself and our personal, intimate access and relationship to him in that place. And he says to these believers, I'm coming to bring judgment to your church, but to those of you who remain faithful, you'll get everything good that comes from my hand forever. The morning star, you get me. Jesus is, is, is remarkable. There's none that are like him, right? 
He is the perfect balance. If you were to go back and, and just read about his life and ministry, the perfect balance of doctrinal integrity and love for people. He's the one who understands the truth, who is the truth, who speaks the truth, who lives the truth all the time, 24-7, who gets it right all the time. The one who is able to know and to discern with wisdom when it's time to walk into a temple and pull out a whip and flip over tables. And he's the same one who knows when it's time to walk up to a woman who's been caught red-handed in adultery and to offer a hand of love and forgiveness. He's the one who understands what it's like to say to a Pharisee, you are a whitewashed tomb. You are empty and devoid of anything that's true and anything that's real. But he's the same one who loves a woman by a well enough to sit down and carry on a conversation about her past infidelity and reveal himself to her and call her to faith. If you want to know what it looks like to balance these things well, look to Jesus Christ who always got it right. Who is the perfect example for us. He is the, the morning star. The one who shines so brightly in truth and in justice and in purity. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, see that was probably the problem at, at, at Thyatira along with a lot of these churches. There are people in the church who don't know Christ. They've never repented of their sins. They've never abandoned their own self-efforts self at salvation and thrown themselves at the feet of Jesus, asking him to forgive and save and offering up to him their life. They've just sort of tagged on spiritual stuff to their sinful life. If that's you this morning, you need to look to Jesus Christ and know him as your savior before one day you stand before him as your judge before whom you'll give account for your deeds. Come to Christ today. Repent of your sin and trust your life to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we recognize that the dangers for the church are all around. There's the danger of becoming a loveless church. It happened at Ephesus. And there's the danger of becoming a, a church that's too loving and too tolerant, that just allows blatant sin to run uncontrolled that allows heresy, heresy to run rampant and Lord we desperately need your wisdom and your discernment to be a church that keeps these things in balance that walks this line Lord Jesus like you did give us a heart that cares about doctrinal purity and is willing to address it when there's heresy in the midst and give us a heart that loves people and is drawn to even do that in ways that are charitable and kind and patient and humble and gracious. Lord, ultimately, we don't know what your performance evaluation would be of our church, but when we look in the mirror, I think we have some sense of what it would be in our own lives. And so as we close our time together reflecting on your word this morning, make us aware, Lord, of ways in which we're harboring sin in our lives. And maybe this heresy we haven't, that's going on in Thyatira, we haven't fully in, embraced it, but we have believed in some way, shape, or form that it doesn't really matter that much what we do with our bodies, that it's okay to harbor a little sin, that it's okay to go along with the crowd just to fit in and, and, and to you know, maybe enhance our economic gain, that you're okay with that, even if it compromises our faith, even if it causes us to sin. Remind us of this church and how deeply you care about such things drive those truths from our minds and those behaviors from our life forgive us Lord we pray it in Jesus name Amen